When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi everyone. Before I begin this week's episode, I have a very special message from California Dreaming. Please take a listen, and maybe you will be able to help. On August 22, 1996, 22-year-old Debbie Dorian was discovered bound, gagged, raped, and murdered in her apartment. Her father was the one to have made the horrific discovery, and to this day, her killer has never been apprehended and her case has gone cold. However, he did leave behind his genetic marker, his DNA. Though he would lay dormant for nearly three years, he did strike again, raping at least seven more women in the Visalia, California area, linked to all of those crimes through his DNA. But Debbie would be the only known victim to have died at his hands. With DNA technology having advanced by leaps and bounds over the last 22 years, as well as some recent, very high-profile cases in California that had long been cold being solved, it is our hope to shine a light on Debbie's case, to bring this killer and rapist to justice, and a measure of closure for Debbie's family and friends who have waited much too long for answers. With the blessings of Debbie's mother, Sarah, and the help and guidance of her best friend, Katina, California Dreaming and Orbital Jigsaw are bringing you their story in episode 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian. You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Welcome to the Asian Madness Podcast. This month is the podcast's birthday month. Thank you to all who listen, subscribe, rate, review, donate, pledge, and all that. So I will be doing things a little bit differently this month. This week's episode will be a listener's choice episode. It's a great case, and I think you guys will enjoy it. But before we get to the episode, I would like to play a few birthday messages from friends that I have made in the podcast world. Listeners and podcasters. Or both. Here goes. Hi, this is Cambo from True Crime Island. 
Wishing Jess and the Asian Madness podcast a very happy birthday. Boom Fagalanga. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder of the Trail Went Cold podcast, here to wish the Asian Madness podcast a happy first birthday. I've had the pleasure of meeting and hanging out with Jessica at CrimeCon these past two years, and she told me that The Trail Went Cold was the very first true crime podcast she ever listened to, which helped her get into podcasting. That's very flattering, and it's really cool when one of your listeners winds up taking the next step and starting their own podcast themselves, especially when it covers stories from halfway across the world, which I'm not even familiar with. So congratulations to Jessica and the Asian Madness Podcast for reaching their one-year anniversary, and here's hoping it's only the first of many more years to come. Hey there, Asian Madness fans. This is Mike Brown from Dark Poutine. We just wanted to extend a happy anniversary, happy podcast birthday to our good friend Jessica at the Asian Madness Podcast. As we started at exactly the same time, we consider Jessica our pod sister. So congratulations, sis, and many more. Happy anniversary. Jessica, the Asian Madness Podcast Queen. Happy anniversary. This is Jairo, a.k.a. Machete Boxer on IG. Um, yeah, congratulations, and uh, keep it going. Hey, this is Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. Jessica, happy podversary or anniversary cast or whatever it's called. Be happy no matter what. You are one of the first podcasts that I ever listened to, so I consider you a complete rock star. Please keep up what you're doing, and I very much hope that we cross paths someday. Thank you for sending these in. I love them. And it's just so touching. I will be playing more next episode, so stay tuned. You might just hear more familiar voices. Now, let's get down to business. For this episode, I would like to thank a very good friend of mine, Ellie Nevitt from the UK. I met her for the first time at CrimeCon 2017 in Indy, and although we didn't really interact much at the time... We ended up taking the same flight from Indy to LA and we had an amazing time just talking about crime. Earlier this year at CrimeCon in Nashville, she asked me if I would be willing to cover the Miyazawa murders from Japan and if I would be willing to give her a shout out. So, here you go. I have to admit, most of my requests are topics from Japan because in case you haven't noticed, Japan is strange. The Miyazawa murders is no exception either. It's weird and brutal and still very much unsolved. And you may also have heard it referred to as the Setagaya murders. Asian crime cases-wise, this is one of the rather famous ones along with Furuta Junko and the Otaku murders. Many other podcasts have actually covered this case already, including Unresolved, Thinking Sideways, it's about damn crime. And so the pressure is on. I will do my best and see if we can solve this case. Just kidding. A few things I would like to clarify before I start. The home layout is slightly weird, so I will present it the way I interpret it, which might be a bit different from other sites or podcasts. But it is generally the same idea, 
and it won't really be that confusing or a big problem. There will be murder and a lot of strange speculation and conspiracies. It can get confusing and overwhelming. Enter at your own risk. Let's begin with a brief overview of the location and some background information. Setagaya is known as Setagaya-ku. You can call it a special ward or area in the city of Tokyo. It is about a 20-minute drive from the busiest part of Tokyo, as in Shinjuku or Shibuya. This is the most populated ward of the 23 special wards in Tokyo. Setagaya Ward itself is then divided into five districts, with one of the districts directly named Setagaya. This would be considered the main district as the ward city hall is located here. So for a more relatable idea of this place, the marathon and walking event of the 1964 Summer Olympics took place in this special ward, and there is also an Olympic park built around here. There are plenty of historic monuments and natural parks that are pretty famous, so you definitely will not get bored if you ever visit. So let's talk about the Miyazawas. This family of four lived in the Setagaya district, in an area known as Kamisoshigaya. The family members included the 44-year-old father, Mikio, the 41-year-old mother, Yasuko, 8-year-old daughter, Nina, and the 6-year-old son, Dei. Mikio and Yasuko were said to have met during a seminar at the Unification Church and were eventually wed in the church. So, what is this Unification Church? It is said to be somewhat linked to Christianity, or a branch of the Christian Church. This religion originated from South Korea in the year 1954, and to some, it is actually considered more of a cult than an actual religion. The religion continued to expand and eventually made its way to Japan and to the United States. The leader of this religion, Moon Sun Myung, claimed that Jesus Christ appeared to him when he was 16 years old and had given Moon the responsibility of continuing his work on earth. So obviously, when Jesus freaking Christ asks you to do stuff, you kind of go ahead and you do it, right? Aside from using the Bible, the Unification Church also uses the scripts written by Moon himself. So yeah, he pretty much considers himself Jesus Christ the second. There are quite a few podcasts you can go check out that discuss this church. So that's the general idea. The family was said to have been devout churchgoers for a long time, but more on that later. Mikio was employed by the company Interbrand at the time, a company from the UK that does branding consultancy. Yasuko had started her own in-house cram school business, which is kind of like just teaching students at home. The Miyazawa couple settled in Setagaya in the year 1990, and at the time, it was a nice residential area with around 200 households. A great place to have a family and raise kids. Their first child was Nina, and she was a delightful child. Two years after her birth, her little brother came into the world. Rei was said to have been born with certain issues, so the entire family did spend extra time and energy on helping him. Nina also seemed to take extra care of her younger brother. The Miyazawas lived in a duplex with Yasuko's sister and 
and her family and her elderly mother. It looks like one big house from the outside, but is actually completely separated on the inside. Around the year 2000, the area where the Miyazawas were living at was getting ready to undergo some major construction work, which included the Soshigaya Park located behind their duplex. It was such a big deal that most of the families living around there had moved away, all except four, including the Miyazawas. It wasn't that they were being stubborn and refused to leave, they were actually due to move away in a few months. It was probably welcomed by the Miyazawas anyway, as they were having issues with the nearby skate park and bike gangs. There seemed to be many teens making too much noise and whatever it is that teens do. And Mikio was seen to have confronted them a couple times. Aside from loud skater teens, there also seemed to be a problem with a bozoku gang which is a Japanese subculture of young people riding around on their customized motorcycles and very likely making a lot of noise. It seemed that the neighborhood was becoming less and less desirable and safe. And to add to that, many cats were showing up with cuts and bruises, some even with their tails cut. It was probably time to get out of there. Now back to the Miyazawas and the actual crime. As you can probably tell from what I said earlier, the two households were very close, the Miyazawas and the Iriyas, both location-wise and relationship-wise. They were constantly going to each other's houses, whether it was to help each other out or just to have a meal together. And that is exactly what brought Yasuko's mother to enter the house on the morning of December 31st, 2000, between 10.30 and 11 a.m., she had tried calling Yasuko and Mikio's landline that morning, but she had a strange feeling in her gut when the call didn't even go through, like it had been disconnected. She thought they may have left for a family trip, but the circumstances were odd. So she followed her instinct and let herself into their home when so she followed so she followed her instinct and let herself into their home with her spare key when no one answered the door. Nope, they were not away on a trip. The following discovery would have traumatized anyone, and even more so when you're a close relative. She first found Mikio's body on the bottom of the staircase on the first floor. She continued to go up and also found the lifeless bodies of her two grandchildren and her own daughter. The entire Miyazawa family had been brutally murdered overnight, and just like that, Yasuko's mother lost a daughter, a son-in-law, and two grandchildren. I guess there are two types of people, those who would have called the police immediately after finding one dead person, and those who prefer to find out and get an idea of the whole big picture. The landline was found to be disconnected, but the line itself was not cut. The police were notified at around 11 a.m. So, what happened? Facts-wise, Mikio was found dead with multiple stab wounds on the staircase leading from the first floor to the mezzanine, where the bathroom and the children's room was located. Dei was strangled to death on his bed, and the only member who was not stabbed. As for Yasuko and Nina, the two were sleeping on the third floor, a.k.a. the loft, when they were murdered. It seemed as if they had 
attempted to save themselves, making their way to the staircase leading down to the second floor, but both eventually died from stab wounds. The crime scene was crazy gruesome and just extremely bizarre. If you have never heard of this case, well, you need to listen up because it can get overwhelming. Here's a bit of information regarding the Miyazawa house, though. The first floor is the study, basically where Mikio does his work on the computer and also where the kids might do their homework. The mezzanine is where the children's room and the bathroom is located. The second floor is the kitchen and the living room area. As for the top floor, the third floor, or also called the loft, is where Yasuko and Mikio's room is located. The police tried to piece the clues together and came up with a version of what they thought might have happened the previous night. I'm going to directly refer to the killer as a he because of the evidence left behind, just so you know. We will discuss all of that later though, don't worry. The killer had climbed in the house from the bathroom window, which was located right behind the children's bedroom. After entering, he immediately came upon Rei, who was sleeping in his room. It's unsure why the intruder decided to strangle Rei instead of stab him, but it could have been because he was asleep so he didn't have to subdue him, and strangling a six-year-old would have been easy and not very messy. Stabbing him might have resulted in a lot of noise and screaming. Then while Rei was being strangled, Mikio, who was working downstairs on his computer, might have heard something coming from upstairs. When he started to head up to investigate, he probably came upon the intruder, who then pulled out the sashimi knife he was carrying and began stabbing at Mikio. After killing the father, he then turned and headed upstairs and eventually found Yasuko and Nina sleeping on the third floor. Immediately, the intruder began stabbing at the two, but when he found that his knife was becoming dull, he casually left the mother and daughter so he could head down to the kitchen, get a sharper knife, and continue his work. In the meantime, police assumed that Yasuko had reached for the first aid kit and tried to bandage Nina up because there were bloodied bandages that had Nina's blood on it strewn about. But before she could be done, the intruder returned with a sharp kitchen knife and began stabbing all over again. Yasuko may have assumed that the killer was leaving, so she wanted to stop Nina's bleeding before calling the police. Yasuko and Nina were both stabbed all over their faces, which made police wonder if the killer had a hatred for women. Yasuko was said to be unrecognizable when she was discovered. The autopsy reports also stated that there were several more stab wounds that seemed to be inflicted after they were both already dead. Either he was trying to be sure or he just couldn't stop himself. Aside from killing the entire family, the intruder made a ton of strange decisions that would really confuse the police and the public. So if you think this is the end of the case, you would be dead wrong. Pun intended. Now that we got past the sad and gruesome part of the case, here's what really made this case stand out even more. You know, aside from an entire family slaughtered for no apparent reason. Police couldn't explain why, but all the clues at the scene indicated that the intruder had stayed in the house for several hours after the murders. 
several as in up to maybe 10 hours? I mean, who does that? Not only did he stay around for hours, he made himself at home. Police combed through the entire house and they concluded that the last known time that Mikio was still alive would be around 10.30pm on December 30th as he had opened a work email that was password protected. The intruder had probably entered the house and committed the murders after 11pm. On the kitchen counter, police discovered bandages and towels soaked with blood that did not belong to any of the Miyazawas indicating that the intruder most likely had injured himself during the attacks. There was also a bloodied menstrual pad that he had probably tried to use to stop the bleeding. After trying to bandage himself up, he very casually went to the kitchen, opened the fridge and took out a bottle of tea, a melon, and four servings of ice cream. We assume that he ate it all as the empty containers were discovered littered all over the house, on the first floor and in the living room area, which are odd places to throw empty ice cream containers. There were two other empty ice cream containers found in the kitchen, but it cannot be determined who had eaten those since they were left in the kitchen and it kind of makes sense to leave empty containers in the kitchen. There were also many cans of beer inside the fridge, but it didn't seem as if the perpetrator had any. Thus, the police concluded that he may not have a drinking habit. Or maybe beer just wasn't his thing. Next, the police discover a lot of strange items thrown in the bathtub. There was a towel, used band-aids, and shredded and ripped up documents belonging to Mikio and Yasko. Most of the documents were work-related, as in Mikio's interbrand files and Yasko's classwork. The documents never proved to be of any sensitive information, so it was impossible to tell why the intruder would want to shred the papers and leave them in the bathtub. Maybe he meant to do something with it, but he forgot. Now let's move to the living room. All IDs belonging to the Miyazawas were laid out in order, as if someone were studying their names and personal information. The cabinets and drawers were also opened from top to bottom, indicating that the intruder might have been searching for something, or could have just been staging the scene. Not much was actually missing from the home though. The intruder did take about 150,000 Japanese yen, around 1300 US dollars, money that Yasuko made from her at-home cram school business. There was also about 60,000 yen that was left in the study, but the intruder did not take it. Either he missed it, or he didn't want it. Another item that was clearly missing from the home was a sweatshirt belonging to Mikio. It was purchased from a Japanese sporting goods store, and it had the words DIVE, like D-I-V-E, on the front, and the alphabets A to Z on the backside. If you think this intruder was casual, yeah, for real he was. He left so many fingerprints, so many footprints, and so much DNA evidence all over the place. Either he was really dumb and ignorant, or he thought the police would never be able to catch him. Aside from his fridge raid and taking money and the sweatshirt, the killer presumably also took a nap and took a dump because he was either just completely out of it or just too confident. 
It was also found that he had used a computer located in the study. There were bloody fingerprints on the mouse, and the computer was said to have been accessed twice after the murders, once around 1.18 a.m., where he clicked on a bookmarked webpage, a link to the famous Shki Theater. He tried to buy tickets, but the transaction did not go through. Mikio himself was a big fan of theater, and it is beyond strange as to why the killer would want to get tickets at a time like this. But then again, nothing really makes sense in this case. The second time the computer was accessed was around 10am the following morning, literally right before Yasuko's mother came a-knocking. This time, he just browsed Mikio's company's website and some rather professional webpages. He spent a total of less than 10 minutes on the computer. More than a decade later, police added another possibility for the strange hours. It was a possibility that the computer might have malfunctioned during the night, so the second sight surfing may never have actually happened. If that's the case, then the dude probably left sometime in the early morning hours after his attempt to buy the theater tickets. Also, the killer had disconnected the computer's power cord before he left, which may have caused this so-called malfunction. As if all that wasn't strange enough, get this. The intruder left behind so many of its personal items, and honestly, it's just really confusing. He left behind a size L sweatshirt that had purple sleeves. This shirt began selling only a couple months before the murders, and it was said to be a very popular style because the protagonist of a Japanese drama was wearing it. Not completely sure about that, but I did look it up. I've actually seen the drama ages ago, and it first aired in January of the year 2000. It's a really good show, by the way. It's called Beautiful Life, in case you were curious. Anyway, a Uniqlo black AirTech jacket, size L, was also left behind and impossible to trace because too many had been sold in the past year. Although the intruder did not leave his shoes behind, he did leave a billion shoe prints, and that helped investigators determine his shoe brand and shoe size. It was a brand I had never heard of called Slyzinger, and it was determined that the shoe was a size 28, which is a shoe size from Korea. The same shoes were also sold in Japan, but since Japan and Korea have different shoe size systems, it could be easily determined where the shoes were from. Either the shoes were brought from Korea, or the perpetrator had been in Korea recently. A fisherman's hat was also found at the scene, and it was a rather common style that was sold in many places. A green scarf with red, black, and orange checkered lines was also discovered, but again, this was a very common scarf. A pair of black leather gloves were left behind, but it did not seem to have been used at all during the intrusion. A very dull and worn-out sashimi blade was left behind on the kitchen counter, which was said to be the initial weapon used against the Miyazawas. Two black handkerchiefs were also discovered, one in the mezzanine floor and another in the kitchen. Both were brought from the store Muji, one of the handkerchiefs had a hole cut through, and police determined that it might have been used to wrap the sashimi blade in. A rather large fanny pack was also left behind in the Miyazawa home. It was dark green and determined to be sold 
from the city of Osaka. The bag also had many holes in it, probably made from the sashimi blade. This bag was extremely interesting for two reasons. First of all, after examining and testing the fabric for DNA or chemicals, it was determined that the bag tested positive for particles that can only be found in hard water, meaning it has a high mineral content. In Japan, most water sources are soft water, which means it only contains sodium. Also inside the bag, investigators found sand, and believe it or not, sand can be traced back to where it is originally from. And in this case, it could come from the deserts near Nevada or California, but to be even more exact, it matched the sand from Edwards Air Force Base in California. A lot of other minerals and such were discovered in the bag, and a lot of these were not common in Japan. Many of the minerals discovered were also commonly found in skateboards. Hair belonging to the intruder was also found inside the bag, as it matched the DNA found with the blood left at the scene. This solidified the assumption that the killer had an international background, along with his Korean shoes and his American sand. Could the murderer be a skater boy? A traveler? An American skater boy? A drifter? A military officer? A Korean military officer who likes to skateboard? Or just someone with serious mental health issues? Please note, I say fanny pack, but I know a lot of places say hip bags. To my knowledge, these two are pretty much the same. In Chinese, we also say hip bags, which would be fanny packs. Hips, fannies, eh, close enough. One last piece of information... There were traces of a certain type of perfume found in the bag and on the handkerchiefs. The perfume itself is called Dracar Noir, manufactured by Guy La Roche in France. No idea what that smells like though. About a hundred days after the murders, a small Buddhist statue was discovered nearby, by the Senkawa River. It is unclear whether or not this is related to the Miyazawas, but it's worth a mention, just in case. The statue itself is known as the protector of children, so it could be someone, maybe the killer, who put it there as a way to apologize? Who knows? So, one question. Are you overwhelmed yet? Because I was when I began researching. I knew about this case, but hearing about it and writing and researching an episode yourself, those are two completely different things. I was going down this rabbit hole so badly, I almost booked tickets to Japan just so I could travel to the Miyazawa duplex and check out the skate park and whatever. Maybe solve the case. The only thing that stopped me from going was actually the weather. There was a typhoon coming, so I would rather not risk it. But take your time and try to absorb all the information I just gave you. You know what will help? Looking at photos of the duplex layout, the items discovered where the bodies were found, and all that. This is the only instance where I have uploaded the photos of the episode before I released the episode. I hate to ruin the mystery of my episodes, but I made an exception this time. I was really confused with the layout of the house, so hopefully those show notes will be helpful. Go ahead and check out Instagram or Facebook. So after gathering all the facts and evidence from the house, 
investigators began to work backwards. What were the Miyazawas doing on the day of the murder? Or the days before the murder? Or just an hour before the murder? According to witnesses, the Miyazawa family had been out shopping for groceries around 6pm on the 30th. Another neighbor corroborated this claim because the Miyazawa car was not seen at their home at the time. At around 7pm, the family had arrived home and Yasuko had made a call to her mother who lived next door. Her daughter Nina had also made a visit to see her grandmother that night. At around 10pm that night, people walking past the park allegedly heard noises coming from the Miyazawa home, sort of like a couple arguing. Police also wondered if the perpetrator could have been inside the Miyazawa home, and that is why there was arguing. And if that's the case, then the murders could have taken place an hour or two earlier than they had initially thought. But then someone else came forward stating that they had heard a huge thump coming from the Miyazawa home at around 11.30pm, which could be assumed to be Mikio falling dead on the stairs. This could be connected to the previous argument, or it could be totally separate. But at this point, it was impossible to tell. Other information began to surface on the days leading up to the murders. On December 25th, Yasuko had mentioned to her father-in-law about a strange car that was repeatedly parked outside their home. Another neighbor had seen a young man wearing clothes very similar to those found inside the Miyazawa home only two days before the murder. He was also spotted only hours before the murder took place. The witness remembered the young man very clearly because he did not seem to be dressed properly for the weather. On the day of the murders, Mikio was seen arguing with another man, but it was never fully looked into. Might have been a skate park boy or a bike gang member. Another man was spotted nearby on the night of the murders wearing the same style fisherman's hat but it was impossible to determine if it was the killer. Around 11.30pm the night of the murder, witnesses say they saw a man walking hurriedly past the park near the Miyazawa home. All of these witness accounts could be something, but unfortunately, none of these ever amounted to anything. In the afternoon of the 31st, after the murders, a man had allegedly visited the first aid station located inside a train station about 70 miles away. He had a deep cut on his right hand, the kind where you could see his bones. Obviously, this is not something you see every single day. The nurses felt weirded out, but they never asked for more information from the man. This actually sounds like the most promising piece of information and account, but like the rest, nothing came of it. A cab driver had also stated that he had picked up three men around 30 years old around the same area. The three men were sketchy and did not speak at all while in the cab. After they got out, the driver noticed that one of them might have been hurt because he left a bloodstain on the seat. Kind of gross. But sadly, like the previous incidents, nothing has come from this bit of information. I think it's safe to assume that the biggest mysteries of this case would be the timeline of the murders, the identity of the killer, and the motive. Let's now discuss theories and bits of my own opinions. It would not be incorrect to assume that the killer spent quite some time inside the house because killing four people takes time and he had a fucking feast from the kitchen. He also took the time to browse the internet and then probably got sick from all the ice cream so he took a dump in the bathroom. 
But whether or not he left at 1 a.m. or 10 a.m., it still is a big difference. A newspaper delivery person said the front porch light was off when he went to deliver their newspaper early that morning, but Yasko's mother said the light was on when she went to their house that morning at 10.30 a.m. Either someone didn't remember correctly, or the killer was actually inside the house, still chilling. Yasko's mother remembered the door to be locked when she went over, so she used a spare key to open it, but as the years went on, she became less and less sure of the details. I don't think you can treat this case as your average murder case because so many details just don't make any sense. The fact that the killer spent more time than necessary inside the house was strange. His actions? Definitely strange. His lack of DNA awareness is also strange. And speaking of DNA, let's talk about this guy's DNA and who he might be. According to investigators, this killer's blood type was type A and he was of mixed race. His mother's side was from southern Europe, possibly around the Mediterranean or Adriatic region. As for his father's DNA, the specific genes were said to be found 1 in 13 Japanese, 1 in 10 Chinese, or 1 in 5 Koreans. So this killer was definitely an international person, someone of mixed race or someone who lives overseas. His DNA and his shoes kind of indicate he might have ties to South Korea, and the sand found in his bag could mean he travels often, or something like that. But if he were mixed, I think he would have stood out, and more people would have remembered his face. His height was estimated to be around 170 to 180 centimeters. So let's talk about motive. A popular opinion would be that the perpetrator is someone really mentally ill and disturbed, so none of his actions would make any sense and thus useless trying to make sense of it. To most of us, no one stays around for 10 hours after killing an entire family. Assuming that he stayed that long, though, it increases the odds of getting caught, and also trying to go online and looking up theater tickets after killing an entire family is pretty fucked up. Then there are some people who believe that the entire chaos created in the Miyazawa family was a way to misguide investigators. I have to admit, if that is the plan, it worked. Police cannot dismiss any of the clues and evidence, whether it's the food he ate, the poop he left, or the personal items he left behind. But if he was trying to misguide everyone, why did he kill them? There has to be a motive anyway, right? Some people have said it could be the teens from the skate park. They could have possibly gotten in an argument with Mikio, decided that they had to do something about it. If it was some teen from the skate park, it kind of explains the minerals found in the bag and their lack of DNA awareness. But would a teenager really be this cruel? I can't answer that. Anything is possible. If this was the case though, could there have been more than one murder? Maybe two or three teenagers climbed in through the window, which explains one person strangling day while the others were stabbed. Of course, this could be a possibility, except that only one person's DNA was ever discovered inside the house. Could this have been a hit? Of course, people always assumed that the Yakuza would do something like this, but there was no sign that the Miyazawas were involved in anything shady, 
nor did they have any enemies. I also doubt that the Yakuza would leave behind such a mess. Could it be work-related? Well, they did find work documents ripped up and the killer also possibly looked up information in Mikio's computer. But according to Mikio's co-workers, they highly doubt it could have been work-related as he was not really working on anything particularly intense or sensitive. Another possible scenario is the Unification Church. Remember I mentioned earlier that the Miyazawas were devout church members? Well, for some reason, there is not a lot of information about the connection to the church. The Miyazawas allegedly left the church before their murders, which, yes, could be just a coincidence. But the fact that the church is considered to be a cult to many, could it really be just a coincidence? It is known that the Unification Church has a lot of power within politics, not limited to South Korea, but also in Japan and even the United States. Some say it's unrelated, and that is just lies. While there are others who question the lack of reporting on this subject and the connection between the two. This is a conspiracy theory that includes many countries, and let's just say the letters CIA is mentioned a few times. I was browsing the Japanese forums, and someone stated that Mikio was said to have left the church and wanted to make a complaint about the church, and of course, he most likely had a lot of inside information. It is speculated by some that he was silenced by the church made to look like a weird break-in that made zero sense, and yet with all the available DNA left behind, the person is still roaming free. In other words, the politicians and the police technically cannot solve the case, as in they are not allowed to solve the case. This connection just blew my mind. The Unification Church has its fair share of murder and abduction stories, so if you're curious enough, look it up. One more piece of information I probably forgot to mention is that it was a possibility that the killer could have military background. Yes, the sands that were traced back to Edwards Air Force Base was one clue, but another clue was the footprints found in the house. The killer apparently walked around the house in accordance to a type of military training by walking along the walls. I'm not really sure how that works because I'm not too familiar with the military but if you kind of get what I'm saying, let me know. Also, the fact that the killer did not drink any of the beer in the fridge was an indication that he was trying to stay clear and focused while on a mission. This is all speculation, so take it as you wish. But if the person does happen to be of military background, I don't think it should be difficult to get a DNA match, regardless of his nationality. A few years ago, a Japanese news channel released an update on how Yasuko's sister was doing. Both Anne's mother and husband have passed away, and now it's just her and her son. It's really sad to think that at one point there were eight members from this family alive and well, and now less than 20 years later, only two are left. Anne has participated in grief counseling, and just thinking about her nephew and niece still brings tears to her eyes. She still hopes that one day the crime will be solved and the murderer will be identified. The special news report also listed the top five major happenings in Japan's recent history, with the Miyazawa murders at number five and number one belonging to Aum Shinrikyo. 
This case has the highest reward amount in Japan, and although it's been cold for so many years, there are still many police officers assigned to this case. They still make it their duty to report to the public with updates every single year, and police officers are stationed in front of the duplex at all times. The flyers and information of this case have all been translated to many other languages, considering the killer could have an international background. An investigative author, Ichihashi Fumiya, wrote a book about the Miyazawa murders in 2015, stating that the person responsible is actually a South Korean military man, and in his book, refers to him simply as R. He also said he was able to obtain R's fingerprints, which happened to match up with the fingerprints left at the scene. Is this for real, though? If yes, I don't see why this case is still unsolved or why no one has gone after this R guy. Unless it's just a theory. But it does match up with the whole South Korea ties. I don't feel very optimistic about this case, to be honest, although I would love to see this get solved. I think I just found my pet case. So there you have it the strange murder of a seemingly normal family. Japan was and still is considered rather safe, so you can imagine how this case rocked the entire society. Considering how more and more crimes are being solved because of preserved DNA, I really hope this one gets solved. But of course, If there happens to be a huge political or religious conspiracy behind it, they will always find ways to stall. I hate even considering this possibility, but then again, it has happened before and it probably will happen again. What are your thoughts about this case? I was really excited researching this case and I want to hear your thoughts. Tweet me, message me, email me, anything. I want to hear what you guys think, because since it's unsolved, Anything is possible. This was my longest episode by far, so thank you everybody for sticking with me. Till next time. I really hope everybody enjoyed this week's topic because I myself enjoyed researching it. And now, before I go, as usual, I have my shout outs. For my review, I would like to thank Mo Lunger from the US. Thank you. And as for Patreon, Thank you, Tanya Ostinovich. I think、um, that's. I, I have no idea. I don't even know what I'm doing. I should have just said Tanya O, but I wanted to try anyway. So I think you know who you are, and I'm sorry for mispronouncing your last name, but it's really, really difficult. Then there is Jisoo Kim. Thank you so much. And also. The Baked and Awake podcast. I think you guys know what that's about. You can tell, can't you? All right. So, thank you guys for your support. It means so much to me. Please stay tuned for next week's episode. There will be a few more birthday messages. Yay! And also a very different topic. And also, something kind of different. Something you probably will never hear about on my podcast. So, I hope you guys look forward to that because I kind of am. Okay, no, I am. I have to. All right, then. Thank you again and see ya. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast. 
please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.